Okay, I guess I'm only three minutes late. So, well, now four. Um, <clears throat> just a quick update. I, I don't know how many of you know um, Leland Hovey. I know a good number of you do, but he has been in the hospital since Sunday and I see or Saturday. ICU, um, and he, <clears throat> he has pneumonia, um, but he, not COVID, influenza. Um, he is not doing well at all and um, starting to have heart, uh, congestive heart failure and things are not looking good. And, you know, relatively speaking, um, Leland's, by today's standards, not old, 71, um, tough. Um, and I, one thing I can't, I can't remember, uh, he either got, he's either a bronze star or silver star from um, Vietnam. Um, he's just tough, and he's bounced back from bad stuff before, but um, got some issues, you know, underlying issues that, I don't know which way it'll go. So at any rate, that's where I've been. <clears throat> well, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll um, remember that request. Father in heaven, I do thank you that it doesn't matter where we are, what we're doing. You're always with us, and you're always with the people that we lift to you in prayer. We may not be able to be in the room there with Leland, and if we are, we can't really do anything, but you can. And so, Lord, I'm grateful for some encouraging news today. Overall, um, doesn't look like a lot of change, but we know, Lord, our times are in your hand. And so I pray, if it's your will, that Leland would recover. And, Lord, um, we have to leave it in your hands. We have to mean it when we say, Thy will be done. So, because you're wise, right, you've never made a mistake, and you know what's best. So, with that in mind, we, we commit him unto you and just pray that you would minister to his own heart through all this and let him sense that you are near to him, I pray. Be with us tonight in our study. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> um, we'll finish plan here to finish English Methodism and then American Methodism tonight um, and by the way this is the first what, you, what I'm going to say um, is the first time I've ever had to say this in my life I was mistaken I, I was wrong when I said that next Wednesday we won't be here, but we are meeting next Wednesday, even though we're also meeting Thursday, uh, next Thursday, a week from tomorrow night, for um, Monday, Thursday, and communion service. Normally, in the week that we have, uh, Easter week, we have Wednesday off because we're here on Thursday, but I can't remember why, but we're still going to be here. So <clears throat> counting tonight, we have six more 
Wednesday nights to finish um, <clears throat> the class that we're doing. And um, my plan is that really with tonight, we'll be kind of moving to America. And the with Wesleyanism, with the Methodist Church coming here, then that, that will be uh, the American church scene and the history of uh, religion here will be what we finish, okay? Now, so back to Methodism, Methodist Church in England. <clears throat> Last week, we um, got into the, the initial starting of the Methodist Church really with Wesley, John Wesley's conversion in 1738 um, and the start of um, what we would call, and he did too, but itinerant preaching, uh, traveling around. That was a bit at the beck and call of people, um, but as more and more success came with um, Wesley's preaching, and of course not just him, but his brother Charles, um, and for a good time with George Whitfield, um, there were a number of people that um, began to preach in outlying areas around London. They were always, um, almost always, forbidden to preach in any of the Anglican churches anymore, even though they were all ordained Anglican clergymen. Um, they were forced into preaching in the fields, preaching in groves of trees, uh, preaching in houses, preaching in uh, old factories. I mean, just any place they could, they, they would preach. Um, and <clears throat> I told you, and we, I don't think we need to necessarily hit them again, um, the Methodist, fundamental Methodist doctrines um, were, of course, the new birth that you could know you were, you, you, you had a conversion experience, not infant baptism or some ritual or sacrament that su supposedly brought you into the church. Methodism was an experiential theology you, Jesus actually came into your heart and you actually knew it. And your life and heart actually changed. Um, you communicated with God. You walked with God. You prayed. You read your Bible. You went to church. You met with other Christians. Your life was completely, all things became new, okay? Um, that was, it's hard for us to realize it, but that was completely brand new, nutty to the run-of-the-mill Church of England clergymen, the, pa the parish pastors, all the way up to, um, you know, the Bishop of London and the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was, is the head. Um, <clears throat> and there's a group of people, I think, here's something else we could say about uh, Wesley. Wesley and his brother and the, the, the early Methodists preached to maybe, well, you know, England, of course, you know, British has a history, a lingering history of a class system. 
and um, you have the nobility, the peers, you have the, you know, the upper crust. You have kind of the middle class, which would be, um, you know, the, the merchants, meaning uh, the shop owner, the, the butcher, the shoe cobbler, um, those kinds of, of, if you'd call them by today, businessmen. Then, of course, there were the total untouchables, in a sense, the bottom rung. It was those two bottom groups that the Methodists aimed their ministry at. Now, there were a number of people in the upper class who became Methodists. I mean, God, this was a revival of God's doing. It, the Methodists and the Wesleys were God's um, servants, but this was, a, this was a move of God um, almost unparalleled. And I think I mentioned last week, I don't think I'm exaggerating, the, the, some early revivals, including the day of Pentecost and the early growth of the church, the Methodist movement that went all around the whole globe um, has to fit in with those kind and those caliber of revivals um, the the middle class and the upper class or the middle class and the very lower class had rarely been the subjects of ministerial care um, the the clergy were pretty corrupt and they kowtowed to it was usually you know duke so-and-so or who lord whatever that um, you know, put the stained glass windows in the church. And so it was an upper crust kind of um, religion, if you want to call it, Church of England. <clears throat> the Wesleys then, so that was another reason that, that in general, the church and the government and everybody looked down on the Methodists because they were, um, you know, they were dealing with the, the little people, you know, the, the crummy people. Um, <clears throat> now, the doctrines, Wesley, then was um, clear conversion, which, goes, which I, I think, let's say, puts this into one doctrine. Clear conversion, but the witness of the Spirit. In other words, you could know you were saved. Um, anyone that confessed that was considered um, a fanatic. Their word was enthusiast, but you were fanatic. Wesley and all his people were crazy, as far as they can see. Um, there were some people, though, some of the upper crust that weren't, um, they were okay with Wesley merely because he, he gave something to do to the little people. I mean, they came to hear him preach, and if they got saved and they paid some debts back or kept stealing from the, the Lord of the manor or whatever, yeah, they were happy with it. Um, because there, there's a great book that I have. It's probably, well, I don't think it's out of print. It's written uh, quite a while ago. But it's called Revivalism and Social Reform. And it's mostly on the Methodists and America, but the Methodists in England and America. And the absolutely, um, the, the radical turnaround of society as a result of the Wesleyan revival. Um, the amusements in England were, of course, um, gambling, horse racing, um, bear 
bear baiting, cock fighting, dog fights. Um, and there were um, the upper crust in their coaches and their, their um, coach drivers and their footmen riding on the back for an, an outing on uh, holidays or, or Sundays often, a day off, was go to Bedlam. Now, everybody's heard the word Bedlam, right? What does Bedlam mean when we use it? Chaos, okay. Well, Bedlam, Bedlam was the main mental institution. And so, for a day out, you go drive through the grounds of Bedlam and see all the crazy people that are chained to the walls or, you know, up in trees and wandering around with no clothes on and... That was your, um, that, that's what you did. Pack a lunch and instead of going to Los Compadres and, you know, whatever, um, you go um, trot through Bedlam and see all the crazies. Um, society was actually for being as civilized, you know, as you'd say, um, there, I believe there were 160 some um, crimes that were punishable by hanging, by death. Um, it, it actually was it was it was a brutal society, especially for the lower uh, the lower classes. Hangings were another huge outing. You know, I mean, people would dress up and they would go they'd go see the hangings, and the hangings were constant. Um, the Wesleys sometimes almost daily would go to, um, in London, they'd go to the various prisons and they would ride in the wagon full of death row inmates. And of course, you didn't sit on death row. It wasn't any of this, you know, automatic appeal and you're there for 10 years. I mean, you, you could have a trial. It's like, it's like the old West to a point. I mean, you had a trial and they, sun, sun up the next morning, you, you met the hangman. Wesley would ride with them in the loaded cart wagon full of prisoners that were going to the gallows and pray with them. I just happened to read today in, in, um, in his journal where he said, I think he went with six men, he said, in a wagon that were going to be hanged. And he prayed, he said, I think, I think that four of them found peace with God. I uh, didn't know about the other two. But that was a very common occurrence. So what we think of as England and being a high uh, literate and educated and all that, there were still was an underbelly that was really corrupt and brutal and tough. Okay? That was where the Methodists focused a lot of their ministry. Um, so they were looked down on to some degree because of that. Um, <clears throat> another major doctrine is what uh, prevenient grace, and I don't want to spend a lot of time, but I want to I say this. I think prevenient grace is one of the most God-honoring and, and God-revealing kind of doctrines. Prevenient grace, the word prevenient simply means the grace that goes before. 
Some people called it preventing grace, but it, uh, prevenient grace is considered, um, it's an unconditional benefit of the atonement, meaning this is freely given to every human being through Christ because of Calvary. It's un- unconditional. Forgiveness of sins is not unconditional. Justification, put right with God, is not unconditional. Sanctification, heart purity, is not unconditional. You meet conditions. God helps you meet them, but you meet them. Heaven is not an unconditional gift. But there are a lot of benefits of the atonement that are unconditional, meaning we just have them. Salvation of infants. Um, That was something that, of course, Catholicism, you don't go to heaven unless the infant is baptized. If they're not baptized, they're not even buried in consecrated ground. Um, They're buried outside of the churchyard, graveyard, outside the fence, because they, and they go to limbo. You know, we talk about, boy, I just feel like I'm in limbo. Well, that's a, that's a Catholic medieval doctrine. Limbo uh, is a kind of place and state eternal of suspended animation. And the, the people who go there are good heathen, whatever that means, but people that weren't Christians, people that were, you know, like Plato and Aristotle, okay? Wise, you know, thinking people, um, reasonable people, acknowledge some form of God. Um, they don't deserve to go to hell, but they go to limbo as well as, I think some of the angels that fall went to limbo, but I'm not sure. Um, so throw that out. But infants who aren't baptized, unbaptized infants, go to limbo. Neither hell, neither heaven, and they never get out. You're just there forever, okay? Um, my sister was and her husband were missionaries in Argentina for a while, and she, I, I, she showed pictures of little headstones, I mean little ones, six, eight inches high, outside of a high adobe wall around the Catholic church in the graveyard. And they're all lined up out there. And it's pitiful. Look at all those little headstones. Because to the families, if they buy into all that, that little little baby doesn't go to heaven. Uh, They're in limbo forever. an unconditional benefit of the atonement is that all children are taken immediately to heaven. They are under the atonement. They are members of the household of God until they reach of accountability and willfully, knowingly depart, go against God. Okay? And age of accountability will vary from person to person um, depending on what kind of light we've had, what we've been raised. I believe, obviously, a Christian home in the United States, you're going to have somebody, uh, children will reach the age of accountability lower age than if you're in Afghanistan or North Korea or where they don't, you don't know anything about God, never seen a Bible. Um, but all of that is part of God's unconditional grace of kindness and goodness. The restoration of the capacity to respond to God, to choose 
to follow him or to reject him. That very power is an unconditional benefit of the atonement. And everyone has a free will. That was another major doctrine of Wesley and the Methodists. They were Arminians from 150 years earlier, James Arminius. Um, they were not Calvinists in that they believed we, that God elected some to be saved and elected some to be lost. There's nothing you could do about either group. Um, they denied that completely. And so that meant another doctrine. Universal salvation is available. God is not willing that any perish, but that all come to repentance. Um, that then completely shifts your preaching. Your preaching is um, evangelistic preaching. It's preaching to persuade because everybody who is persuadable can make it. And so a lot of people in the ministry, of all the years I've been in the ministry, you hear people talk all the time about, well, we just we need to hang on to the right message, but whatever the methodology, we can, you, we can go with the times and change. No, your message determines your method. Okay? Um, if I don't believe that everyone has a chance to be saved, I only believe that in the mysteries of God, he has chosen a few that are to be saved and the rest are to be lost. There's nothing either the lost or the saved can do about it. What changes your preaching completely? In fact, in the um, 1700s, late 1700s, early 1800s, when the what's called the modern missionary movement began, um, there was a Scottish Presbyterian general conference or something. And I, th I can't remember the name of the, I think it might have been Bobby Moffat who ended up being a missionary um, out of the Presbyterian church. And ironically, the Presbyterians sent out a lot of missionaries over the centuries. But they believed the, in the, elect some are elected hell, some are elected heaven. If you're going to be really strictly consistent, you don't need missionaries. God's going to save them. Stay home and enjoy England. Um, but I think if it was Bobby Moffat, little Scotch, stood to his feet in this convention or conference and talked about feeling called to go to the mission field and would they support him and help him do that. Some elderly, you know, predestinarian made the statement, you know, young man, sit down when God chooses to save the heathen, he'll save them. Um, your message determines your, me your methods and your preaching and everything. So that's why Methodism was, you know, thrust out into the world to preach to everybody that was moving, okay, because everybody could be saved. Um, then, of course, a particular doctrine was um, not a new doctrine, but it was a resurrected, dusted off, um, and repainted <laughs> doctrine um, that there are two, everybody acknowledges always, there's two aspects to the sin problem. 
but that both of them could be settled in this life. One is the personal sinning we've committed for which we are separated from God and guilty. We're forgiven of those in justification, but there is such a thing as entire sanctification, which is also an act of God by faith in which he purifies our hearts from the remaining sinful nature. Uh, it's James, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Um, that was a, you could say, it really wasn't a Methodist doctrine. It was labeled a Methodist doctrine because the Methodists had kind of rescued it from the scrap heap. And, and let, me, let me give you a parallel. Just like Martin Luther rescued the doctrine of justification by faith from the, the um, city dump that it had been in for about a thousand years, Wesley resurrected and cleaned up and re-proposed um, the doctrine of Christian perfection. Now you go back all through Catholicism and the doctrine of Christian perfection is everywhere but it gradually came to where it was achieved not by faith in the atonement and in, and in the blood of Christ, but it's achieved by pilgrimages to Rome and, if, you know, stuff. You do stuff. They still believed it, but you're, you achieve it in another way. Um, so those doctrines were peculiar, I think you, you would say, though they weren't, they were biblical, but they were re had a renewed emphasis in Methodism, okay? Um, <clears throat> now, Wesley then, um, things just kind of, he, one other thing about John Wesley, he was, by everybody's account, even today, still studied for his amazing administrative abilities. Um, an organizer, he was amazing. Um, how he, he was probably one of the most well-read people of the 18th century, of the 1700s. He also, uh, he wrote just voluminously. Um, there's 14 volumes I have in my library of the works of Wesley. That's, that's what he wrote officially. All of, you know, letters and all kinds of other stuff in addition to that. Um, and he also organized the Methodist Church and organized his, his converts into, as I mentioned last week, everybody was in the, the society. Then members of the society were divided into groups of 10 to 15. We call them small groups, but he called them classes. So you're all in the society, then you have a particular class you go to, and then in addition to those classes, you had what were called, he had what were called bands. And they were, they were, they had particular um, needs, meaning if you were, well, if you, it was kind of like if today, we would have a small group for um, grief. We, we have a grief share that meets here Sunday afternoon, okay? That, that's for a particular time and particular need for a group of people. He had bands of those who he said testified to being made perfect in love using John's, 1 John's 
sanctified, those that believed that God had purified their hearts, there was a band for them. Why? Well, because different groups had different needs at particular times. Also, a brand new Christian faces things that a 50-year Christian uh, doesn't face and vice versa. So and he was really meticulous about care of the sheep. That was the big thing. Preserve your results. Now, I know I'm, I hope I'm not rambling too much, but probably or possibly, at least initially, George Whitfield was a more popular preacher and had initially more converts than Wesley did. They worked very closely together until Whitfield and Wesley divided over Calvinism. Whitfield became a Calvinist. He reverted uh, from Arminianism to uh, a predestination Calvinist. Okay? And in that day, the predestination Calvinists um, for some reason didn't mind that their doctrine of predestination really taught that God himself decreed, that was the term, was the decrees, uh, decreed that everything we did, which made God the author of sin. Well, Wesley and Whitfield had famous arguments. They Wesley preached Whitfield's funeral, but um, they were really at odds, you know, over that, and they kind of parted ways. Um, Wesley put it this way to Whitfield: "You have succeeded," he said, "in making God worse than the devil." He said, "The devil can only tempt man to sin, but God decrees it." That's a pretty good answer. Um, now, the reason I brought Whitfield up is was initially I, he had greater crowds and he paved the way in what was called field preaching out of doors and got Wesley to join. And Wesley was very reluctant about it because he was really high churchy and he, he submitted, he submitted, he said, to, you know, to this degrading thing of preaching outdoors, but he never preached out of doors where every priest, he had his robe and his, you know, collar with the, you know, they didn't have the collar you have today. They had the, they had a collar, but you, you know, you had these, um, what do you call them, kind of hanging down. Anyway, um, because the, he drew the line at that. I'll preach outdoors, but I'm not preaching if, you know, I have my robes on. Anyway, <clears throat> when it got to, the, in a sad kind of, admission Whitfield near his end of his life he died quite a few years before Wesley did he said that he failed to do what John Wesley did in conserving his work his converts because he said my work has become a rope of sand he didn't have any people left. They scattered because he never organized them. He just, he preached and then people got converted. But he organized nothing for them. 
they kind of were just let loose to go back to the Anglican Parish Church in their neighborhood, and there they either backslid or died, you know, just kind of dried up. And but he did nothing to um, nurture and care for and disciple his converts. As and and Wesley was clear the other opposite extreme. So that had a lot to do, I think, with um, the success of Methodism. However. I still think the major success of Methodism was because of the truth they preached. Because if I go to somebody, if I want to sit and listen to a preacher who tells me, you know, God either chose you or he didn't choose you before you were born, and you don't know and I don't know and you can't know, and it would, but it doesn't make any difference because if you want to be saved and, you know, if he's chosen you, you will be saved. If he hasn't chose you, chosen you, you won't be, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Or you know, I got somebody over here who says, listen, God loves every single one of you. He died for every one of us. And he wants every one of us in his, in his heaven with us. And he's got blessings and forgiving, forgiveness and cleansing and victory for you. I'm not going to go sit there and listen to the guy that's telling me that there's nothing I can do about it if God chose me to go to heaven or hell. That's ridiculous. So I think organization between Whitfield and Wesley was not the major reason that Whitfield's converts never went anywhere. It's a lousy doctrine to be told. Um, at any rate, in Wesley's lifetime, from 1738, of course he was preaching before then, but we can date from his conversion in May of 1738 till March of uh, 1791 um, was his preaching ministry. Um, a to- he was a clergyman a total of 65 years, but his from his conversion and his evangelism work as a traveling evangelist, that's um, what 53 years, something like that. Um, <clears throat> in those 53 years. It's estimated that Wesley, um, this is hard to believe, but and, I mean, he'd have to have cooked up his whole journal because I, yeah, I have his whole journal. And you read in there today, you know, in the morning, I preached at whatever. Um, and then rode how many ever miles, and I preached there. And I pre- Wesley averaged between two and three sermons a day for 50 years plus, okay? Um, and he, he got up, his, they asked him when he was late 80s, he died at 88, they asked him to what did he contribute or attribute his length of life? Well, of course, God. He said, God, he said, I'm immortal till God's done with me. Can't die. Um, but he said he, he attributed his life, his long life, to um, not eating, not being any kind of a glutton, um, rising at four, preaching at five. He preached every morning at five o'clock. Okay. Now, I, I suppose I could do that, but I'd be talking to the walls. Um, but what Wesley was doing um, 
he, especially going through the coal mine areas and so forth, um, he preached to the coal miners who were either coming to work for the day or had worked all night. And they would stand out in the out of doors, but they would stand and Wesley would be there at five o'clock and he was just a stickler for punctuality. He said, he wrote to his preacher, don't you ever disappoint a congregation. If you tell them, yeah, I'm gonna be there at five o'clock in the morning next Thursday, you better be there. He says, I don't care what you gotta go through, you get there. Now, I mean, I, I suppose if he had a blizzard or whatever, but um, he was a stickler <clears throat> for um, keeping your word, always meeting with people. Um, and so he would, he, within a few years, he settled on a, a circuit that he did every year. He left London, soon as spring began to come, and he went up the eastern side of um, the island of England. Um, he, would, he would weave back and forth, but then he would come up, he'd go into Ireland, he'd go into Scotland, he'd come down, go into Wales, um, and he would he'd do a circuit around the whole nation. Um, and it took him probably nine months to 10 months and then he would be at home in London during the worst of the winter, uh, weather, he, where he preached there also a couple times a day. Um, he Later in life, midlife, he built a church called City Road Chapel, which is still there. I've got pictures of myself up in his, in his pulpit, which had a rope across it, but I figured, hey, if I came all the way from Gillette, Wyoming, I'm... Um, but <clears throat> anyway, um, but then, then he still preached in all kinds of buildings, wherever. And sometimes even in the winter, preached outside. Uh, if that's the only place. Sometimes, most of the time, they preached outside because the building they had wouldn't hold the crowds. Um, it's amazing what, how many people in, they would use natural amphitheaters and things like that where he would preach to thousands of people. Whitfield... Benjamin Franklin documented that he could hear George Whitfield almost up to a mile away. And Franklin estimated that somewhere in Philadelphia that he figured there had to have been eight, upwards to eight or nine thousand people. He marked off the pro, you know he marked off the dimensions of the field they were in and tried to figure out how many people were in every square and. Um, so it's not just a, it's not the preacher saying, you know, there were thousands there. Um, it was documented. And of course, nobody had public address systems. You just spoke, you trained yourself, even orators trained so that they could project their voices and be understood. You go clear back to the Greeks. You ever heard of a guy named um, Demosthenes? Well, he, uh, he was a great orator. Apparently he was friendly and had a lot of friends, and I don't know why I'm off on this, but anyway, he, he had a lot of people to hang out with. So <laughs> he was crazy. So that he didn't get himself invited to too much stuff. He shaved off half of his head, um, you know, half his hair, 
and just made himself as weird as can be so people kind of left him alone. That way he had nothing to do but practice speeches and make them up. And then he did two other things. He would go down to the beach and project his voice so he could be heard over the crashing of the surf. And then he'd stick little pebbles in his mouth and force himself to enunciate clearly with a mouthful of pebbles. That's how he trained himself to be a great, a great speaker. So they were able to speak to large uh, groups of people. Um, I'm going to have to sum up, I guess, the end of um, Wesley um, with how he began to worry about America. Um, and in the about the 1760s, so 20 years after Wesley started, I think it was 1768, the first few Methodists moved, emigrated to America, and they lived in either Philadelphia or New York. There were some in New York. Well, they wrote back to Wesley, there, you know, there's nothing like the Methodists here. We, we, can you send a preacher over? Well, there was a couple preachers were sent over. Um, but then in 1771, um, Wesley sent Francis Asbury. And Asbury was, um, I think he was just 22 or something like that when he went. He knew he'd never see his parents again. He was the only son of his parents. He told them what, you know, um, they were converted under the Methodists. And, um, <clears throat> you know, that was a hard pill for them because they knew, you know, you don't, you don't catch a flight in just three hours you're back home. It's, it's a th maybe a couple months ship ride, and he knew I probably will never see you again, and he didn't. Um, <clears throat> but he left, and he got to America in 1771. Um, he became then the, the main preacher, um, spreader of Methodism in America, and um, ended up the, he was the name and face of Methodism in America. Um, let's see, how can I best kind of, I don't want to quit on Wesley because it's 1771, he still had another 20 years of ministry in England. Um, the Methodist Church in England continued to grow, can more and more preachers. Um, he started what were called annual conferences where they all met. Um, and they, interesting, they very, very, very little business. But they would meet for about four or five days. Most of what was done, most of what they did was they preached to each other. They would have a lot of preaching. They would have long sessions where they talked about theology and questions of, one of Wesley's famous books is called A Plain Account of Christian Perfection about the doctrine of entire sanctification. Um, and that is merely transcripts of what they talked about at the early annual conferences that they held. Um, then <clears throat> a lot of prayer, and then they went back to their assignments. Wesley set up an itinerant system that was the same in America. Um, it's what I grew up under, and that was where there is no, no candidating, no church calls a preacher, no congregation votes on the preacher. Um, they are assigned by 
a, a superintendent or they had different names, a, a presiding elder or whatever. Um, but they were all assigned to what was called a circuit. No one had one church. Everyone had multiple churches in multiple villages that they were responsible for. And so they would, they would do a circuit. And usually you, you may not get around to all of your churches, but once every six weeks. That necessitated in these little small groups that he had what he called class or lay leaders. Because who met with them in the five Sundays that the preacher wasn't there? The lay leader. Um, so it was a very lay kind of a religious movement. And the preachers, almost without fail, the preacher's education was a thorough conversion experience. Okay, um, And in their saddlebags, this was required. They carried... Wesley's standard 52 sermons, okay? He had 52 sermons that he selected that covered every doctrinal issue, the Trinity, salvation, you know, all, heaven, hell, whatever. 52 sermons, those were their theology books. They were to read those, that's where they got their theology. Of course, the Bible and the Methodist hymnal. And that was what they, that's what they had. They didn't have seminary degrees or whatever. So the use of lay preachers, which didn't mean they weren't called, they just didn't have a formal education, um, made the movement what it was. Um, let's see. And, and the last thing um, on these circuits, Wesley was also wise. He knew his, his preachers were not highly educated, and he knew that they would run out of gas on what to preach. So he moved them, um, and the same thing happened in America. He moved them quarterly. So you had a circuit, and you preached on it for, at the most, three months, sometimes six months, okay? And then you got assigned to another circuit. Somebody else came to this circuit. To this day, the Methodist Church operates, now, not on quarters, but you're appointed annually. And you may be appointed for a number of annual times. But I think, I think the Methodists are moving a bit away from it, but it's still going to be in the four, five, six-year range is going to be the length of a long pastorate. Um, when in, in our denom the denomination I grew up in and that we were in up until two years ago, when I was in Oregon where I grew up and um, entered the ministry under uh, the Evangelical Church in that Pacific Conference. That We had 65 churches. We probably had, and you throw in some assistance, um, you probably had 100 preachers that were active. Okay, some, Maybe a few were assistants and youth pastors, but you had 65 or so churches. Out of 65 churches, <clears throat> when I hit 10 years, I'd been appointed to the, my church in Oregon City for the 10th year. I was one of, I think, eight people, eight pastors, maybe nine, in, of that 100 pastors that was in double digits at the same church. The average stay, was, I think, was 4.5 years. 
So, and here's what it kind of settled into. And th- this is going to, I didn't really think of it till just right now. It might sound bad. You had kind of a, you had a group of this in that conference, and it was the same everywhere. You had you had the whole roster, and you had a top. You had a group of of maybe what would it be twenty percent of them that their churches didn't want them to move, and so they stayed, and they would badger the superintendent, "Don't move him." And then you had a lower group. You had a bottom group that they got moved about every two or three years. And then you had a middle group that wore them out by, say, four or five years, six years, and then they moved. Um, The whole thing averaged together came out to about four and a half years overall, okay? But it really really was, in some ways, a bad system or became a bad system because most superintendents were— well, your heart goes out, I guess, to people. But they would keep moving these guys around every two or three years because they were no good. I mean, you just had to face it. They, every, you send them there, you know, it's a struggling little church, and by the time three years is up, it's more struggling. So what do you do with this guy? Do you sit down and you tell him, listen, bless your dear heart, something's wrong here. You're, you're, maybe you thought you were called and you're not, or maybe you need to... I don't know what, but it's not working. Instead, they just moved them around and they'd spend their entire career, three years here, two years there, four years there, getting a mess there and be gone after one. You know, and, and that kills the church. I mean, it just kills it. And whenever a new preacher comes, it's, okay, how long is he going to be here? You know, is he going to make it three Sundays or, you know? And so it's bad. Um, but at any rate, um, it worked for quite a few years, both in England and in America, of, of moving guys around. And it also necessitated, especially in America, that the, almost every one of the ministers, the, the um, Methodist preachers, were single. You, you couldn't have a family and drag them around somewhere because most of those guys, many of them, were literally Technically, they were homeless. Francis Asbury came here in 1771. He died in 1816. Okay? When he came to America, Methodist was the smallest denomination in America. When he left, when he died in 1816, they were the biggest. Okay? He never owned a home. He never had a home. He just stayed in cabins along the paths. Sometimes people he didn't even know occasionally stay in an inn somewhere. There were, as more and more people became Methodists, they were, there were specific Methodist families that always, we, we keep the Methodist preachers whenever they come through our neighborhood. And much of it, of course, in early America was, I mean, it was hardly cities. It was jungle. I mentioned, maybe I mentioned last week, when I was a superintendent, and I had, I had a church in southern Kentucky, and I would drive down from Indiana to southern Kentucky and back through those, you know, haulers and uh, rivers and valleys that I would cross with bridges. I mean, you, you barely, I mean, just, it'd be hundreds of feet down into this gorge 
would be in Francis Asbury's, he would name, I, I followed the Cumberland River or whatever. And I used to look down, I think, how in the world? Um, I don't even know how I got through there. Um, by the way, I forgot to mention, Wesley preached probably 50,000 sermons, they believe, and rode somewhere in the neighborhood of 230,000 miles. Okay? So, historians rightly say no one knew England for the entire 1700s like John Wesley did. I mean, he talked to everybody. He was in every part of the country. He heard the rumblings about they hate the king or they hate the taxes or, you know, he, he, he had his hand on the population like nobody else did. And I think I mentioned last week, I'm not sure, in America, you would send a letter and you'd just say, Bishop Francis Asbury, um, America, N-A, North America. U.S., North America. That's it. Well, A, he had no address. B, you never knew where he was at. He could have been in upstate New York. He was in Georgia. He was in South Carolina. He was in Tennessee. He was in Chillicothe, um, um, Ohio. The group we're a part of now that's headquartered in Ohio, Churches of Christ and Christian Union, uh, they have a big church in uh, Washington Courthouse, Ohio, okay? In Asbury's Journal, he preaches in Washington Courthouse. Um, new little settlement carved out of the woods. Um, Vanderbilt University, Tennessee, um, came about as a result of Asbury's preaching and, you know, there was another big thing with the Methodists. They were big into education for their ministers. And so a lot of uh, colleges and seminaries and so forth um, that they started. Asbury preached about 17,000 sermons over a 40-year period, um, far less than Wesley. But Wesley had nothing like the territory that uh, Asbury had to go through. Um, Asbury literally, um, well, there's, I, I happen to read in his journal today where he spent the night with three or four preachers. And, of course, they had no tents. They had no nothing. They would maybe have um, a tarp, a little bit of a tarp or something. They'd hang over a limb of a low-hanging limb tree, and they'd sleep on the ground. Get up in the morning, 4 o'clock, <laughs> And they'd, then they'd go to some cabin somewhere in some little, little village and they'd preach to whoever was there. And, you know. um, but he said he spent the whole night because um, of Indians. Um, he was worried about it. And so he said, all you guys sleep and I'll, I'll just stay awake in case the Indians get us. Um, uh, bears, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was the frontier. Um, crossed the Appalachians, went, you know, into um, what's today Pittsburgh. It was just a little tiny village where the rivers came together. Uh, but it's really fascinating um, to see in his journals and his letters the places he preached. Um, and the thing that was also interesting, there was never any question he would, he or any of the Methodists or any other preachers for that matter, can we have the courthouse to preach? Sure. He all the time preached in the county courthouse or st stood in the steps and preached to the crowd out in the street. Um, 
routinely house even the state house of legislature absolutely you can have you can have a service here um, there was nothing known about the nonsense we have today um, asbury went to the white house called on george well it wasn't white house yet i don't think called on george washington you know as a methodist minister and talked to him about some of the stuff he didn't like was going on at some of the retreats. I think, you know, that real famous place in West Virginia, Greenbrier or whatever it is, that they, they, have, a, they have an underground place where Congress can meet in case of nuclear or whatever. Well, um, he preached there and he let them have it because there, I guess it was hot springs and whatever and it was just kind of a, for that day, gambling and women hanging around and you know, he was invited not to come back. Um, but there was a, also, to, tr to the traveling and the, um, there was a saying through all of colonial America, especially late 1700s, well into the 1800s. A stormy night, there's nobody out tonight but the crows and the Methodist preachers. They were known, they were, they were just they were itinerant. They were out preaching to anybody that they could grab. <clears throat> um, when Wesley died, now back to England, when Wesley died, there were roughly 120,000 Methodists uh, when he died. It's a fantastic uh, last paragraph of a three-volume book by a guy named Tyerman who wrote it in about the 1850s, um, Life and Times of John Wesley. When he died, it said he left his preaching gown, um, his shoes, I think three or four spoons, his books, his papers, meaning his sermons, stuff like that. Um, it said like five or six uh, silver coins. In other words, didn't have a dime. And it's kind of a, it's a comma and a space and 120,000 souls. And that was only in, in England. There were about that same time, um, shortly after it, uh, America exploded in comparison to England as far as Methodism went. Um, by the time you get to 1850 um, in America, uh, one in three people that were involved in a church were Methodists. That's just stunning. One in three were Methodists. Um, during that same period of time, and for, a, for decades, the Methodists were averaging two new churches in America, two new churches every day. It was a... <clears throat> uh, so Methodism, Methodism had greater success in America than even in, in England. Um, I think I got enough time to give you my little theory on partly why that is. Um, for one thing, you didn't have a state church in America, so it was sort of a religious free-for-all, okay? Everybody was open to get converts wherever you could get them. But second of all, I think um, Arminianism, free will, fit America. Americans, for all of our, you know, faults, um, especially early Americans were 
hearty, um, just ingenuity coming out the ears, can-do-ism. Um, we, can, we can do it. We'll win. I don't care what. There's got to be a way to do this. Innovation. Um, and everybody was... Um, oh, I remember reading about Daniel Boone. He was so far into the brush that he didn't think anybody was around. And he, he one day on in some mountainside where he was, he saw somebody canoeing, paddling down this river that he was living by. That was it. He moved. He went further west. I don't want any neighbors. Um, but you go over the next horizon, you hack out a living, you, you, you cut the trees and you kill deer, and you, you know. The, but, but Arminianism, free will, and that, that God is for everybody was a peculiarly good fit with America. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons Methodism, as opposed to other brands of Calvinism, Presbyterianism, a lot of the Baptists in America, Methodism was a perfect fit for the culture and the thinking of the American can-do-ism. Um, <clears throat> and it was unusually, there's no other country that had, that where Methodism had the um, appeal and the success um, as here in America. Now, um, let me just kind of preview, I guess, next week. Um, with Methodism in America, you also have, again, with no state church, you have an explosion of churches, many of them, some of them you could say Native American churches, okay? But the bulk of the churches were state major mainline churches that came over from Europe. Lutherans, Mennonites, Anglican, of course Catholic, Methodism, Presbyterians, Scotland. Um, they were already here. But when, uh, you know, freedom of religion and no state church um, in America, it was sort of every man for himself. And it also produced, not necessarily some good things, it produced all kinds of fractures. So you have just a multiplication of different denominations. Now, a lot of them would even use some of the earlier names. They'd still be the such and such Presbyterian. But like today, I don't know how many Presbyterian denominations there are. There's an evangelical Presbyterian. There is a, a kind of a Wesleyan Presbyterian. There's Presbyterian USA, and I can't keep it straight. There's USA, and, and, and is it... Um, what are, the, what are the two main ones? There's Presbyterian USA, and then there's Presbyterian of America or something. Anyway, one of them is bad, and the other is worse, okay? As far as ordaining homosexuals and the rainbow flags all over the place and that kind of junk, okay? Um, but you have then in virtually every different denomination that came over from Europe, you've got a whole bunch of, of like 
mainly one or two kinds of Lutherans came over. Why? Well, I don't know how many Lutheran denominations there are here in America now. Um, I mean, there's a whole list of them. They all came out of one group, the Lutherans. Okay. Um, so that was a product of America sticking just finally, and then we'll go to Methodism. Because I think Methodism would be more prominent in this, what I'm going to say, than any other denomination. Methodism was at the pinnacle. I think they had, they had the most success around the globe, seriously, since Pentecost. They also had the best doctrine there is because it's a biblical doctrine. Okay? And God's hand helped them. They were at the highest. Unfortunately, fall, they had further to fall and they managed to pull it off. Okay? So, there are at least 60 to 70 to 80 somewhere, and I think that's a low number, denominations today in America that originally, you trace their roots back, they were Methodists. But as the Methodists began this side of the Civil War, their worry about educated ministry got too far and something called German higher criticism of Scripture got into the American universities, including the Methodist schools, and they began turning out preachers that had questions about the inerrancy of Scripture and the infallibility of Scripture and they, well, this Trinity business. And, and so in the about the late 1860s, 1870, the Methodists started a rot. Now, it's a long, slow process, but in, especially in different regions, the South has hung steady longer. New York, New England, you know, up in there, they were, they were drying up in the roots way before anybody in other parts of the country in the Methodist church started going off the rails. So when that kind of stuff happened, you'd have a group in, well, you had a group, um, one thing that spawned a bunch of people leaving the Methodist Church was pre-Civil War over slavery. The Methodist Church itself split into the um, ME, Methodist Episcopal Church, Episcopal meant the former government, the ME Church North, and ME Church South, okay? And the South started their, began to start their own schools. Southern Methodist University, there's a bunch of them in the South, bunch of them in the North. And that was, I can't remember, it was a long time after the Civil War that they ever got back together. And there were lots of people on both sides who didn't, who abandoned the whole thing. 1840s is when the Wesleyan Church started. And they started over slavery because the Methodists wouldn't take a stand against it um, at that point. And so they pulled out. Then you, you, everybody, anybody heard of the Free Methodists? Okay, the Free Methodists started in 1857. And they started in New England over pew rental. Okay, that's where the word free. Um, people owned the pew. Now, I went to Williamsburg, Virginia, and you can see the pew, the, you know, the brass nameplate, George Washington, 
Patrick Henry, whatever, that's their family pew, even got passed down in wills. Um, you know, well, the Methodists were renting them. You had to pay for it, annual fee to be in this pew. And they were usually a, a box, and you had foot warmers in them and all that kind of stuff because they didn't have any heat in the church. So anyway, um, there was a rebellion against that because it hurt the poor people, and it kowtowed to the upper crust. So the free Methodists pulled out, and of course they stuck to the doctrine of sanctification and free will and all that, but that was, their, that was the straw breaking the camel's back for them. Um, there's probably, and we'll, we'll look at them probably next week, but there's at least, there's a huge number of Methodist churches or churches that have their roots um, in the Methodist church maybe 100 years ago. Um, and that was the case with Baptists. What do we got? 50, 60 Baptist denominations in the United States. Lutherans, Mennonites splitting up into, you know, Amish and Old Order Amish. And in northern Indiana, there are some Mennonites that they can... There's some Mennonites that stick to horses um, and buggies. They're more conservative. Then you have other Mennonites that they, they can own a car, but they get a car, and you you know you know you get to know who they are. Um, they try to get them with as little bit of chrome on them as they can. They're all black. They get a black car with as little chrome, and what chrome there is on it, they'll spray paint it black. So the bumper, the handles, everything's black. Um, and you know, okay, that's a, you know, that's a really wildly liberal Amish slash Mennonite or something. Um, but America just multiplies churches because it doesn't take very much to say, okay, we'll just start our own denomination. Um, that'll become the picture we'll look at through America uh, for good or bad. Okay, well, we got to quit. <clears throat> um, Maybe a couple more things we'll finish up next week. Um, it's awful hard to cover as big a movement as Methodism in, you know, two lessons. Father in heaven, we pray that you would go with us as we go. Um, once again, <clears throat> I thank you, Lord, for, well, the heritage we have. We can look back and see, even through flawed people and flawed churches and everything else, you kept your truth alive. And we're sitting here today because somebody was faithful to us and prayed for us, told us about Jesus, and explained the Bible to us, and you got to our hearts. And so, Lord, in spite of all the stuff that people can do, you're still able to keep your church going. Keep us, we pray, as we go. Keep us safe, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you are dismissed. <clears throat>